This episode is brought to you by Ariat. Ariat Heritage Roper and Duraterrain are long-time favourites and the perfect choice for the tough jobs. These boots work hard and look good. Superior leather and exclusive Ariat ATS technology cradles, stabilises and cushions the foot so there's never a need to slow down. Ariat, when you measure your day by acres, not hours. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Welcome back to the Central Station podcast. We've had a fairly wide range of people connected to Outback Australian cattle stations on the show so far, but today is definitely a first. Today, we have an Outback postman. For the last 19 years, Peter Rowe, or Rowie as he is known by the locals, has been delivering mail to small towns and cattle stations along the Udnadatta track in South Australia. Rowie is an incredible gentleman whose story is, well, incredible. I had such a great time yarning with him that we ended up recording for two hours, so this episode will be released in two parts. In this first part, Rowie shares the story of how he came to Coober to be a millionaire and why he swapped opal mining for pottery. It was such a privilege to hear these stories, and holy hat box, this fella dropped some gold nuggets of wisdom along the way. Make sure you check back in next week for part two. To begin our conversation, I asked Rowie to tell me about what he was like as a child. Oh, the mongrel kid. <laughs> <laughs> I used to go to school, and when I'm away home, I'd not come home for till after dark. My mother was always didn't know whether I'd been kidnapped or got lost or drowned or run over by a motor car and and I got a lot of beltings for it, yeah. How old were you at the time? Was this when you were like six or sixteen? Oh no, by sixteen I was a young adult, but I mean uh, when I was a child going first going to school for primary education, I suppose most of it was, yeah. yeah. Wow. And whereabouts were you living at that time? I was living in Melbourne, grew up in Melbourne. And um, we lived about uh, 10 mile out of Melbourne. Those days it was an old market garden. Um, it's now suburbia, of course. Um, and um, uh, there's an old uh, dairy farms around there and that kind of stuff. So I used to go catching yabbies and all that sort of stuff and plant around in ponds and, yeah, come home filthy dirty and got a belt and do it again <laughs> the next day. So. So you weren't getting into trouble per se. You were just exploring and being a child. It's not like you were stealing things. No, I wasn't being. Yeah, I wasn't doing anything bad. I was just, I was just curious by nature, and and uh, you know, put my hand in the water and let the leeches latch on and see how many leeches I get in one go, and all this sort of stuff, you know. But just stupid things, you know, box of matches and burn them off, you know. Oh my goodness, I couldn't. I I was a mongrel kid. I'm, I've never had a leech on me and I'm terrified by the idea of them. So, yeah, we definitely wouldn't have been playing as no, kids together. No, no, no. I would have been like, no. <laughs> I I'm didn't gonna... like girls either, by the way. They had germs on them, see, so. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, for all the little kids out there listening, girls do have germs, so boys stay away. Well, boys actually have the germs, but uh, okay. And so what about your family? Uh, what did they do and, and how many of you were, were in there? Uh, I, had a, I had a much younger sister, so I will never – that close, I suppose you could say. We are close now, but we weren't that close. No, those eight years difference. So by the time I was a teenager going out, she was only like an eight-year-old kid, you know, so. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Dad was a carpenter. Um, Mum was a stay-at-home mum uh, to start off with, to bring the children up. Uh, mum was originally a sergeant in the Air Force during the war until I came along and mucked up the system. And um, 
but she was a stay-at-home mum while she grew, brought the kids up and then eventually um, went out and worked in florists and that sort of stuff. She used to sing on the stage with uh, amateur musicals, that kind of thing, uh, yeah. So. And may I ask, what decade was it that you were growing up in as a child and a teenager? I was born in 1944, so you work it out from there. Yeah, okay, so the yeah. fi- like 50s and 60s. Yeah, for you. 50s and 60s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And you've been, you know, so you said you grew up in Melbourne, but you've been in Coober PD, which is in northern central South Australia, I guess yeah. is that where we call yeah. them up? Halfway between Port Augusta and Alice Springs. Springs, yeah. yeah. And how long have you been in Coober PD for? Yeah, I kind of Coober PD in 1967. Um, so what's it now? 2001. So. Got 54 years. 50, okay, I was going to say, I'm glad you did the math on that because I was thinking, I was I like... Came here, I came here in April 1967, yeah, it was April, I remember that because I still got my first original minus right. Wow, okay, yeah, so let's talk about how you ended up in Coober PD. Uh, well, as I said, I grew up in Melbourne, but I was never happy there, uh, and I was a city boy, full and full, full and full through. But I used to go spearfishing all up and down the east coast of, of Victoria and New South Wales, uh, bushy every weekend. And then when I wasn't doing that, I'd go bush up to places like Hauka River, which is the back of Mount Buller, um, a ski resort. And there's a little river that runs down from there with all the melting snow, and it's a trout river. And it's all that big, t- tall timber country, that beautiful timber country that you see the man for snowy river and that kind of thing, you know. So I used to go up there and... I went up there with a few friends and then I started going up on my own and I'd walk the river with my fishing rod and a swag on my back and a billy can and, yeah, I got there sometime for a week on my own and just walk up and down the river. I just loved the solitude of it. But I didn't know where it was leading until eventually we decided at the age of 22, a mate and I decided to do a trip to Alice Springs to see Alice Springs in the rock. Um, we went come up in his car. It was a Volkswagen Beetle and we drove into this country and probably about a... 100 k's out of Port Augusta, which is the first time I've ever been there uh, in that sort of country, standing on a red sand hill, big red sand hill. I looked around and I thought, wow. And it sounds corny, but it was like I found home. All of a sudden I thought I knew where I belonged. Um, and, like, there was nothing wrong within the city, but I was just sort of lost soul sort of thing, you know. And I wasn't depressed or anything like that. It was just that. You know, I was going to work on a bus every day and working in a factory and, you know, clock on at 8 o'clock and knock off at half past 4 and all that thing. But then I drove in this country and, yeah, and I saw the open spaces and the freedom and the and the, yeah, the, the, the wildlife and the, the vegetation. And and then before we got to Alice Springs, I met Central Australian people and that hit home like a ton of bricks. All of a sudden they say, g'day, who are you? Where are you from? They want to come and start to have a cup of tea. Yeah, oh, you got a flat tire, we'll help you fix it. That would never happen in the city. And all of a sudden I met this, the friendliness of the outback people. And by the time I got to Wallace Springs, I'd rang up mum, told her I wasn't coming home, quit my job, and um, told my future wife we we're going to test our relationship. And got to Alice Springs and worked in the railways fixing the old Gant train. So how did your mother take that when she gets this call? She, she thinks you've just gone away on holidays. and then She, she wasn't happy. <laughs> but I think she knew what I was like. She was a very sensible woman and she knew what I was like. She knew that I was going to be a free soul and I was, what I was going to do. And, um, yeah, um, so she accepted it, you know, just with a wording, look after yourself. And the reason I think that is because when I was a young man growing up, she taught me how to cook. So every time she'd cook a new meal, come and look at this. But it was never anything flash. She was a brilliant cook, by the way. Uh, her job in the Air Force was cooking for the, all the, all the, all the, all the, uh, all the pilots and what have you, you know. But, um, so she was a professional cook. Uh, but she taught me how to cook meat and three veggies, if you like, or how to cook a good hearty meal and make sure you've got more vegetables and meat and all this sort of stuff and make sure you have a good breakfast. And so that was drummed in me. So I think right from an early age, she knew I was going to be a, a wanderlust, you know, or I was going to go bush or, or live a life that I lived. So, yeah. Sounds like she prepared you very well. I think so. I think so, yeah. She was a marvellous woman. And what about, so your, I suppose, your girlfriend at the time, what was, and who became your future wife, what was her name? Her name was Connie. Connie. And so yeah. what did Connie make of it when you made that oh, phone call to her? I think she knew what I was like as two, Steph. I mean, you know, she wrote back and said, no worries, but don't be too long, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, we kept writing to her. In those days, no such thing as telephones. We didn't phone each other because no one had mobile phones in those days. And, you know, and it was very expensive to phone. So uh, we just write letters to each other. 
And so for months and months, I was up in Alice Springs writing her letters and she'd write letters back. So, yeah. Wow. And so this was the late 60s, was it? Uh, 66. 66. Yeah. Wow. So, and so it was all by letters. So she thinks you've just gone away on a little holiday and then you're expecting a postcard to be like, Hey, Connie, I'm having a great time. <laughs> Look at this. You know, I've seen all these things and you're like, well, actually I found. <laughs> well, in the part of the letters was because I never really proposed to Connie, but, uh, in the letters was, you know, we always talked about getting married, you know, so it was no, never, I never did an official proposal. She never got an engagement ring, you know. Um, but I just wrote to a letter, talked about what Alice Springs was like and all that sort of thing and what Central Australia was like and how free it was and how friendly the people were. And, and I just said, you know, if we ever got married, would you come live in Alice Springs with me? So it was a, it was a foregone conclusion that we were going to get married. Was she ever able to come and visit you before you got married? Not in Alice Springs. No, 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 no. We went home after about six or seven months in Alice. And I went back to Melbourne. Um, by then we'd heard rumours of Coop Petey. Um, you can make money here. So I went back to Melbourne. I got a job. We got a bit more of a grub stake so I can go off again, re- re- rekindle our relationship. And, um, yeah. And then eventually I did the, uh, we uh, found out I could make this money, found a property about Coop Petey. So I came here of the understanding that I was going to make a fortune which would mean that we could buy a house, cash and all this sort of stuff uh, and go and live in Alice Springs. But, of course, I came here and that didn't happen. I didn't find my million dollars. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, so we ended up, um, my mates and I were living in a tent. There were three of three, three of us coming here together and we're living in a tent, um, living on kangaroos and rabbits, um, working all hours of the day and night because, uh, you know, three blokes with nothing to do in the middle of nowhere. You know, two o'clock in the morning, one of us will wake up and go, hey, how about we go and bog that dirt out, you know? So we go and pull a shot, you know, which is mean after they've been blasted, these call a pull a shot. So we'll get up at two o'clock in the morning and have a cup of tea and go down and pull the shot out and come back and go to bed. And do, I'll do another shot and then come back and go to bed, you know? And then get up at sort of like, you know, six o'clock or seven o'clock and go and do another one, you know? So it was quite funny, but, you know, at the time it got to the stage where, you know, we're living on kangaroos and rabbits for six or seven months and, you know, the fortune, I was getting a bit downcast with it, it's not going to happen. And I wrote a letter to Connie to say, we were talking about getting married, set a date and I'll be there. And a fortnight later I got a letter back saying, see you on the 7th of December, don't be late, we can road church. <laughs> so I was in big trouble because I proposed in a letter, you know. And then you got given the day. And so, but I have to ask, why were you living off rabbits and kangaroos? Because we couldn't afford to buy meat. So you guys were literally just kind of like we're broke. squatting, we're squatting in we're a living, tent. Yeah, we were living. Living we're, off the land. Living actually. off the land, yeah. Wow. So then you get Oh, we can buy a bag of potatoes and a bag of onions, but that's what we bought. We never had greens. Oh, goodness. Bags of potatoes and bag. You know, and it's funny because the first parcel of open we found, it was exactly 300 pounds. A bloke bought it by the name of Kevin Kent. Now, 300 pounds, not a lot of opal. In those days, it was supposed to be dollars, but we're still talking pounds. We were not changing. We weren't using the dollar thing. We weren't prepared to change over. We still wanted pounds, shilling and pence, you know. And we got 300 pounds. So we went out and we bought three rump steaks. Uh, we bought a carton of um, a beer. Uh, we hadn't had any beer for that long. Um, we bought a packet of tailor-made cigarettes. And then we spent the rest on Jolly Night. Oh, oh. <laughs> which is that's like an explosive, isn't it? Like, right? yeah, that, the Jolly Night explosive, yeah, yeah. yeah. What you used to play so we up bought, on. so we bought three three rum steaks, a carton of beer, a packet of cigarettes between us, and then we spent the rest on Jolly Night. So we had some, so we could look for more opal. So, yeah. I can only imagine what your mum would think if she could have seen the meal that you're preparing when she taught you about you know having more greens than meat, and here you are going out <laughs> buying meat and potato, meat and, potato, and cigarettes and, and yeah. explosives. Yeah. Anyway, that was life. That was life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you were 23. Man, was fit as a mallee bull and the world was your oyster and you're going to make a million dollars the next day. Every day you went to work, you're going to land on it. You know, every day is going to be the the next day. Put one more shot in. There it is, the Eldorado, you know. And- yeah. So what – tell me about um, working in Cooperpedia and how you were trying to make your money. Cooperpedia is well known for being a, a opal mining. Yeah. So. Were you, you said that you guys were kind of just living off the land and kind of like basically living out of a tent. So were you working for yourselves then or you weren't oh, working yeah, no, for no, somebody no. else? Oh, yeah, no, no, no. They're all probably independent open miners. Yeah, so how does that work? You just go and 
point out to a patch and go, I'm going to start blowing up this spot and whatever I find is mine? Like, how does that all work? Oh, you, you have to get a, you have to get a, a well, in those days it was a miner's right. But they took the miners right off the opal miners and they gave us what's known as a precious stone prospecting permit. A miner right gives you a fair bit of power to go onto people's land if I want to go and prospect on any of the cattle stations, I've got a miner's right. Before I don't give them written notice, I can virtually go out there and prospect around there without wrecking the land. I can, I can do surveys and that kind of stuff, you know. But I've got to do it, you know, with letting them know I'm doing it. But, um, a precious stone, open miners can't do that. And that's where the precious stone prospecting permit stops you from doing that. Um, so, um, when we first hear that, our miner's rights. So you peg a claim, they got, they, you got a number. And you put four pegs in the ground. In those days, it was 50 metres square. And you pick the, put the pegs in the ground and then you notify a pegging, which costs, I can't remember now, it was that long ago, extra amount of dollars. And then when you want to work it full time, you register it. Or if you want to keep it, you register it. And you mine it. So you stick a shaft on it or whatever, uh, or you go in old mines. In our particular case, a lot of our stuff we're doing was pillar bashing going in old mines and looking for any opal that miners may have missed and that sort of stuff. And, um, uh, and that claim was yours for 12 months. Uh, you can renew it every year, uh, but you had to work at X amount of hours per week. You couldn't just peg it and keep it. I think from memory it was, it had to be worked at least 20 hours a week. Otherwise, the mine department could take it off you. Imagine, I can only imagine how different it would be to mining today. Like you're essentially your own boss and there's just like, you know, three lads doing whatever they've got to do, going into somebody else's like abandoned shafts. Whereas, you know, today there's so many rules and regulations and it's, you know, everyone's employed by someone else and it's all big companies. And Well, here it's not. There's no big companies here. Really? There's no big companies in Kirkpeti because... There's no way of determining when there's opal. Now, most big companies oh. will do an assay over an area and say, if we shift X amount of tonnes of dirt, we'll get X amount of return. Yeah. Okay. Uh, opal mine is not like that. Opal is where opal is. Now, opal is a very unique gem, and Coop Pity just happens to have the world's biggest supply of opal. And um, um, and during the 70s, this town was jumping like you wouldn't believe. At one stage, we had the highest concentrate of bulldozers anywhere in the world. I believe there was something like 160 bulldozers here, and of that, 94 were D9 Caterpillar bulldozers in one town. Wow. They shifted mountains, shift, literally shifted mountains. It was remarkable. You know, truckload of truckload of fuel coming into town every week just to supply the bulldozers. It was just jumping, music blaring down the street, nightclubs, gambling houses, you name it, it was on, you know. Wow, how many people do you think were in Coobapedia? Well, time? that's another thing, it's a very un- uncertain point, but at one stage there was 580 kids at the school. Wow. And if you consider most of the town were single men, <laughs> um, the population had to be well over 6,000. Yeah. But we don't know. Yeah. We don't really know. There's no figure. People living out in the opal fields, people you didn't even know were here. They didn't, you know, they were just here to make a fortune and get out, you know. So, yeah. So you had these grand plans of coming here and making a fortune, but obviously that's not how it turned out, at least at the beginning. And so you're living in a tent with some other lads. You're living off kangaroo and rabbit. You, you sound absolutely flat broke, to be, if, if I'm being honest. Like, that's my understanding of it. But then you get a letter from your girlfriend or partner who is, you know, through a letter become your fiance because you got, you said set a date and I'll be there. So now you're getting told you've got to be in Melbourne by, I think it was in December. You said, yeah. How do you, you be your flat broke? How did that work out? Did you actually make it back in time for your wedding? Oh yeah. I made it back in time. No way I was going to miss out. Otherwise my life wouldn't be worth living. <laughs> I forgot to say to my wife is Dutch. So, you don't argue with a Dutch girl, I can tell you. <laughs> anyway, uh, we, uh, no, what happened was I, I sent a letter and she sent a letter back saying on the 7th of December, Wickham, Wickham Road Church, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, hell, how am I going to get there? And there was an American bloke in town by the name of Don Heath. And, uh, he heard about my plight. And he said, oh, hey, you got to get back to Melbourne, Rowie. And I said, oh, yeah, I've got to drink some money or something. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I don't want to ring up mum and I'll want to get in contact with mum and beg money off her. I said, this is a bit embarrassing. He said, oh, I said, I need a shaft sunk. I said, where? He said, oh, I want to test this area. No one's ever put a shaft down in this area. So I said, what's the deal? He said, I want it down to 76 feet and I'll pay you $4 a foot and I'll, exploit, I'll supply all the explosives. So in those days we never had a generator or anything like that. So we, um, a mate and I got together and we went over and sunk the shaft. Go 50-50, of course. 
because he was going to be my best man at the wedding, so I had to get there too, so he needed money as well. <laughs> so uh, we went over and sunk the shaft with a, with a, with a 12-gallon bucket and a windlass and a hammer and gad. The hammer and gad is what you used to drill holes through rock with, uh, with a hammer, you know, like a, a hammer and gad is like a, like a drilling bit, and you hit it with a sledgehammer, and you, and you punch a hole through the rock by twisting and turning, crack, 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 crack. So, yeah, we spent a week and a half putting the shaft down to 76 feet. So I'm just going to get you to walk me through that because, I, I mean, people listening may understand, but that's kind of gone a bit over my head. I'm not very um, okay. mining, um, I don't know, not well-versed in mining. So the shaft is like, is it, it's like a big tunnel that goes, but like a, a vertical. A shaft, ver- a shaft is a vertical hole going from the surface straight Yeah, down. okay. So because you hear about people falling down mine shafts. Yeah, or, yeah. Shaft, yeah. So you're having to dig a vertical hole by hand. Yeah. Like a big like vertical tunnel by yeah. hand. So then how do you, it's like, I imagine I've just got a vision of somebody standing there with a shovel and kind of like, but you know, once you get deeper and deeper, how do you get the dirt out? Once you, well, the dirt comes out using uh, a windlass. Really. Well, most people had motorised winches. Mm-hmm. We didn't. We had a windlass. And a windlass is a, 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 a wire cable around a drum and you turn the drum with a big crank handle. And you wind it up by so hand. So you're just like dropping kind of like a bucket in, filling it well, up with dirt. you can't just drop or, it because there's a bloke underground underneath you. Oh, goodness. So it's quite a dangerous occupation. And the shaft itself is only about a metre square. And 76 feet, like that's that's a… That's a long way. Yeah, yeah. 76 feet, what would that be in metres? Say three, uh, 20 metres, at least 20 metres. Oh. Maybe a bit get, more. How do you, do you have to build like a little ladder to get… No, yeah, we had, like, get- we had ladders go up and down too, but oh, we, had, okay. we had to pull them out because you can't, you're frightened of the bucket getting hooked on the ladder. So when you, when you're bloke, you do, you do a shift down below and you go for say an hour, hour and a half down below and you're up the top with the dirt. Then when you want to come out, you put the ladders back down and he climb up the ladders. Cause the ladders are only little narrow light ladders and you can lower them down and then he climb up the ladders and, or you can wind them up on the windlass seat. So I wish we should wind each other up and down on a on a bosun's chair on the windlass seat. It just that sounds like the epitome of manual labour. Like <laughs> <laughs> look at you laughing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like you I, call it that, really. Yeah, like sometimes, you know, you think things that we have to do today, like you know, putting in a fence or digging a trench or something is like, oh, that's such hard manual labour. Oh, like yeah, nah, you literally nah, dug a vertical they're tunnel. All horses, don't they? Yeah, that just sounds incredible. I'm not gonna lie, I'm yeah. very glad I wasn't around. Well then we end up we end up buying a drilling rig that could put down a hole to eighty four feet. Uh, 32 inches in diameter, which is not quite a meat, but you can fit down a 32-inch hole very comfortably. Um, if it, and we could do, well, if we never hit rock, we could do two of those shafts in a day wow. with a drilling rig. Yeah. So that was called a corbel drill, and we had one of them for years, and uh, we'd punch down holes all over the countryside with them. So, And so so you made the money, so you made it to your wedding on time? We, yeah, made the money, got the wedding on time. And then you are able to, did Connie come back up with you? Not straight away. Um, we tried to build up a bit of a grub stake. Uh, I got a very exceptionally good job. Mm-hmm. Um, frill maintenance on earth moving machinery. Is that, sorry, was that up here or down in Melbourne? Not in Melbourne, it's still oh, in okay. Melbourne. Yeah. And then, and then, um, naturally enough, well, not, not naturally enough, but Connie got pregnant pretty well straight away. Um, and we stayed away for the baby to be born. Um, our first, our first little girl, our little girl. And, um, uh, when she was born, we stayed around and make sure that everything's okay. Uh, which was probably, uh, I think we stayed there for the first year, I think, from memory. I can't quite remember. But when she was a year old, we knew everything was really good and she had a healthy child. We didn't have to worry about her. Because up there, we only had the Bush Nurse Aid Hospital here then, the Bush, you know, the Bush Nurse Aid mm-hmm. Girls. And, uh, we were a bit concerned about that. And, uh, we, um, we, uh, we can make up the Cupid, yeah. What was it like? You said when you first came out of Port Augusta on that first trip to, yeah. to Central Australia that you came out about an hour out of Port Augusta and you're like, you found home and like the country you connected with and like, mm. you know, and I assume you feel similar about the country around Cuba PD. And then you did two stints back in Melbourne, which is, you know, like it's not your country and not your kind of home place mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. But then in that way you had your family. So you, you kind of up here in like a place you, in country you connect with, but without your future wife or your mm. partner, but then you can, or you can have the alternative and be down there. Was, was one more difficult than the other? Uh, no, not, well, not really because, uh, when I went back to Melbourne and got married, of course it was very exciting and, you know, I was still only 23. We got married. 
Um, it was still very exciting. You know, we're starting a family together and we're, you know, moving in and planning what we're going to do and um, trying to build up a grub stake so we can come back here. And then, of course, once um, we knew there's a child on the way, it becomes even more exciting, you know. Hell, we're going to have a baby, you know. Um, so... No, I mean it wasn't. Um, it was. It was setting. A, it was. You're working for a for a um, for a uh, um, uh, for a goal. And I even had thoughts about not coming back. Really, I actually had thoughts about staying there and going back and living in suburbia. You know, but um, and my father was uh, doing everything he could to stop me going back. But he was particularly talking to Connie about it. He didn't talk to me about it because you know I told him to go to hell. Uh, as fathers do with their sons. But um, he was talking to Connie, you've got to stop, and she said, kept on saying, Dave, if I stop Peter from doing what he's doing, I reckon within five or ten years we'll be divorced. He's got to do what he's got to do. He's that spirit, that's what he is, and he's got to do, he's got to follow his own instincts, you know. And uh, he was trying, Dad was come from a different era. He, Dad came from the era of, well, first of all, he was an orphan, so he was kicked from pillar to post as a child. He had a terrible life as a child. Um and then when he started working, the Great Depression hit. And of course, uh, so he actually carried Bluey, you know, swag on his back, you know, chopping wood for people to get a feed and all this sort of thing. And then the war broke out, you know, and he, so he went through the war. So, you know, I don't, I can understand exactly how he was feeling. Uh, and his idea was to get a quarter acre block and build a three bedroom brick veneer home and put a motor car in the driveway and, you know, and and put your money in your super, and when you retire sixty five, you get a pension, and and it's all secure, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that, but I was born in the lucky generation where the war had finished and Australia was booming, and and you know, the, and our, li- our life was our oyster in those days. It's getting harder now than what it was when I was a youth. And we always say we were the lucky generation. Um, you know, even in the sixties, you know, sex, drug, and rock and roll, you know, and. Well, that's what you all probably, everyone's heard that saying. And mm-hmm. that's what it was. It was just, wow, you know, the Beatles and Elvis Presley. And my mother hated Elvis Presley. He was going to, he was going to, he was going to corrupt the youth of the world. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, uh, and the Beatles, oh, wow. At least they wear a tie though. <laughs> <laughs> they get a haircut. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? But I mean, it was, it was a different era, but yeah, but as far as but that, that too, no, I actually, I actually did consider for a while. Uh, of staying there, uh, I'm glad I didn't. Of course, um, and it was, and, and it probably would. Have, what would have happened? I don't know how. Uh, uh, if Connie had insisted we stayed there, or well, that's what she wanted, then I'm sure. I'm, I don't know whether marriage wouldn't have lasted. It'd be very unfair to say that because she was a marvelous woman and very supportive. You know, and um, um, yeah. Um, it sounds incredible that she, uh, you know, being a young wife and mother, and just having that insight and knowing that, you know, this is what you need to do to kind of be true to yourself and being so supportive of you. Mm. Like you said, you know, I'm sure there's many other situations where your dad, if it had been somebody else, he might have convinced, you know, your your wife to, you know, try and keep you where you are. Yeah, yeah. Just and all, so, dad was just, so all dad was worried about was my security. Yeah, no. And, he wasn't and worried fair. about me going to the bush. He was worried about my security. Yeah, and If I went enough. up there and said, I've got a job in a factory up in the middle of central Australia. He's, oh, I'll go for a boy. Good on you. But I was going up there. I bought mine. Yeah. Well, yeah, no security And we all come from Bendigo and all our family were gold miners and none of them had any money. They were all broke and he'd seen what happened with gold miners and that's what he grew up with. You know, all my family were gold miners from Bendigo and and they're all they're on the bones of their bum. Yeah, you know? and all he would have wanted is for you to they're have a chasing, better life. They're all chasing the Eldorado, see, and you know, quite often the Eldorado doesn't come. You know? yeah, 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 no, yeah. it's it's an incredible, yeah. and she sounds amazing. So, what? How long did you end up? Because obviously, where we're talking today, you're not opal mining anymore. No, so, no, no. tell me a bit about your time opal mining and how that came around, and then I guess how it finished up. Oh, we got uh, yeah, we come up here, um, started opal mining, and whatever again the second time with a family. You know, my wife and my, my son wasn't born then, but. My daughter was born, and her name was Bindi, by the way. And when we got when we named her, that caught a shock through the family. Um, was that that was her full name, Bindi? That was it. Oh wow! Oh, Bindi Rowe, and no middle name, just Bindi Rowe, and it suited her. If you knew, if you knew her, you would understand. She was a Bindi Rowe, no doubt That's about that. That's beautiful. And um, but when we named her, that um, set shocks through the family because it was quite interesting. About two days before the wedding, um, uh, my family was. Pretty conservative Australians, meat and tree veg sort of thing. You know, they're lovely, all lovely people, of course, but didn't understand Europeans and that was something foreign, you know. And anyway, 
And I remember going past the land room one day and mum's sisters were there and they saying, oh, Annie, your son's marrying a foreigner. It won't be long before he's eating funny food, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you know, once they met her and knew what she was like, they fell in love with her, of course. She was that sort of person, you know. But uh, my mother thought the world of her. But uh, then when my daughter got born and we said, oh, we've called our daughter Bindi, oh, oh, see, I told you you'd be doing things funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny because today Bindi, I don't know if it's a particularly popular name, but it's associated with one of, you know, Australia's great icons like Bindi Irwin. Yeah, Bindi Irwin, yeah, but but I don't know how we got it actually. I don't know how we, she picked it out. I didn't pick it out. She picked it out. She said, I want to call my daughter Bindi. I said, okay, it sounds pretty good to me. So what does it mean? And I think it's supposed to mean beautiful sunrise or something. And whether it does or not, I don't know. You know, they make these things up. So, yeah. <laughs> but it sounds good. And she was beautiful. She was a mar- remarkable woman. So, yeah. Well, the Opal Mining was, um, yeah, interesting game, very exciting. Um, even when we came back the second time, um, we never had much. So we started, um, I first started noodling. What, so what's noodling? Uh, noodling is where you put dirt through a machine. Um, um, so kind of like sieving? Like you yeah, well, you, you go through the waste like dirt looking for stuff that's missing. Opal for rest under ultraviolet light. And um, while history doesn't show it, I actually designed the first machine. So, But history hasn't showed that, but that's another story. Um, but, um, the, one of the boys I kind of cooped pretty with, he built the first machine and then I built the second one. Um, and then, um, uh, I ended up working there for a while. It was going okay, but it had a little bit of a falling out with a partner. Um, and then I ran a garage for a while, um, about six, seven months and decided got, and then I got offered a deal to go in with a, with a, with a bloke from Sardinia, open mining, they had all these big mining machinery. So I went in with him for about four years or three years, um, and then he wanted to pull out, so we, he wanted to sell all the equipment. Uh, so we had a great partnership. We never made any money, but we had a great partnership, and it was very exciting. And that's what open mining was about. Every day you went to work, it was, you were going to win the lottery. You know, there's no, we're going to go to work day and, you know, we just do a shift at work. Every day you're going to become a millionaire. That's what it was all about. Wow. It was like gambling on the horses, putting the money on your nose on a horse, you know, and you got, and everybody was doing it. You know, every day there was, you know, I'm not a pub man, I'm not a big drinker, but every, 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 at least two or three times a week I'd go to the pub to find out what was happening. And it was like, I'm going to the office, you know. And you go to the office and find it, and then you go to the Italian club, and then you go up to the Greek club, and you listen, who's finding Opal, where, what? And you go ahead and put your pegs in, you know? And it was, all, yeah, it was an exciting time, and there was huge amounts of money coming out. Yeah, you know, we did all right. We did all right, but I never found a big, never ever found a big one. Were you, when you came back up with Connie, did you manage to upgrade from living in a tent with the other lads? To oh, yeah, some sort of house? a little bit better than that. <laughs> we <laughs> moved, we moved into a dugout to start off with. Uh, but we didn't own it. We moved in a dugout to start off, and then I started building the one I've got now. Can you explain what a dugout is? Because actually, until today, until about an hour and a bit ago, I'd never actually seen one. I'd, I'd heard of them a little bit, but this is my first time sitting in one right now, and I don't know how many of our listeners will have um, had experienced it as well. Okay. Well, an underground home is, is, a, is a home tunnel into the hill. And the ground here is sedimentary layers laid down by the inland sea. And in majority of places around Coupe, the ground is very stable. There are places where it's not, and you can't build dugouts. But wherever it's stable, which is the majority of the places, you can um, tunnel into the side of the hill. Now, most people think you're living underground. We are, but you don't go down below ground level. There are dugouts below ground level, but the majority of them, they cut the face of the hill off so it's nice and square, and then they just tunnel in at ground level. Now, as you see when we come here, there's a veranda out the front. We walked, parked the car, we walked inside, got to the veranda, stepped up on the veranda from the ground, walked up at the front door, then stepped inside the dugout. So it's just like living in a normal home. My particular case, I've got a lot of glass in the front of mine, so plenty of natural light's coming in. Uh, and the main advantage of them, of course, is that they're stable. Uh, they don't need heating, they don't need air conditioning. Uh, I've been living underground for 50 years now and I've never owned a heater or an air conditioner. Oh my goodness. That sounds uh, incredible. They're quiet. They're um, beautiful. People like stay is... here and say that and when they stay the first night, uh, they say it's the best sleep they've ever had in years. 
because it's so quiet. There's no ambient noise out there. You're not hearing traffic driving past. You sound asleep, but there's always noise going on somewhere. Like in, in suburbia, there's always something happening, a siren. But you don't hear it while you sleep, but your brain's hearing it. Here you hear nothing. So you just sleep, bang, thank you. I do remember somebody a few weeks ago telling me something along the lines of that, like the houses, like you just said before, you have never had heating or cooling in here, that it's a very stable temperature, like pretty much all year round, like 20... 22. Well, mine gets a little bit colder and a little bit hotter than a lot of them. Yep. And the reason that is I've got so much glass out the front. So when we built this dugout where we are now, my wife said, I want windows. So normally I just have a little window. She said, I want big windows which I knew would make the place either hotter or colder. Mm-hmm. Um, but the amount of time it gets that little bit of extra, when I'm talking about hotter or colder, you know, um, if we have temperatures for a fortnight over in, the, in the mid-40s and not getting below 39 at night, the dugout might get to 28. If we get exceptionally cold winter, where the temperatures are down like zero and five and six degrees in the night, the dugout might go down below 20 degrees, just. Wow. So the amount of times that happens is not worthwhile living under here in air conditioning. You put a jumper on. Put a jumper on. Or if you think it's too hot in the dugout, go outside (laughs) and come back in and you want to put a jumper on because outside it's 45, 50 degrees or 48 degrees and you come inside your dugout and it's 28, it's like you're walking into a fridge, you know. So that's the main part of it. So I've never never bothered with it. So So, well, it's good to hear that you did bring Connie back to some form of housing and not well, not bringing did, you wife and baby and in a tent. We moved out of that. We actually lived in a tent shed. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> went backwards a little bit, but it's we right. went back a little bit. That, that's go... while I was building the dugout. We had to do it while we were building the dugout. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's all right. And so, how long did you uh, stay in the opal mining game for? You know, and then why did you leave it? It sounds like it was a very, I suppose, maybe not risky, but not like I guess not stable. Or you know, there's no. Um, you know, if you have a regular job, you've kind of got that security of a regular paycheck or being employed yeah, by someone else, yeah. you know, whereas it was a bit more touch and go with opal mining is, is what I'm picking up here. It is. It's all, it's all, it's all luck. Opal mining is luck. You, know, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but it gets down to luck. Um, put a hole in the right place, dig a hole in the wall. Um, probably a good example. Um, back in the early 70s, you could buy a house in Melbourne for $20,000, Okay. I sold, when my parents passed away, I sold mum and dad's house, which was 10 miles out of Melbourne, and um, uh, I got $18,000 for it, okay? Oh, and I'd love was, to buy a house for $18,000 And that was, that was on a quarter acre block, $18,000 with all the services, and no one could believe I got that much money for it, all right? Well, the auction got that much money. But wow, that was a record, you know. I met a bloke at a Bronco branding a couple of years ago at William Creek and we got yakking. And he said, where are you from? I said, oh, I originally came from Melbourne. He said, oh, so do I. I said, where do you live? He said, Moorabbin. I said, oh, so did I. Turns out he used to live next to mum and dad's house. Lock, lock, lock. He bought it years afterwards. I said, you're still there? He said, no, I sold it, you know. I said, what'd you sell it for? He said, oh, he said, I sold it for a million and thirty thousand. Like, this is a long time later. This is 50 years later, of course, you know. He said, I sold it for a million and 30,000. I said, oh, well, they bought it for put flats on. He said, no, they knocked it over and built a new house on there. And the, the, blo- the house he lived in was built by my dad's brother. <laughs> so they knocked it down and, uh, and, and built a whole, ha- whole brand new house on it. A million dollars for a block of land. Well, a million dollars for a block of land. So, God, you don't want to build yeah. an apartment building on it. <laughs> That's the case. Ooh. So, yeah, I don't know why we got to that part, but, uh, yeah, that was uh, the difference that it was. So here life was a bit different and, um, you know, you, you build your blocks of houses, dugouts, and you build them yourself. And, and we used to have – it was interesting how the towns changed because back in those days we were all young people and all young – everyone had young families. And all of a sudden someone noticed we're going to have another child. Oh, wow, great, exciting, you know. We'll put another room on, eh? And all the, everyone would turn up with their jackpicks and their hammers and their wheelbarrows and shovels and we'd dig another room on the dugout. That's so and then cool. Everyone, and, then some put the, and all the women would bring all the – put get the barbecue going and, of course, uh, the women prepare it. The men have got to cook the barbecue, of course. You know? <laughs> <laughs> 
I thought we were going to do all the preparation and all the washing up. But, but the men were always going to cook the meat, you know. And they'd make all the salads and then we'd have a, you know, once we finished the day's work, we'd have a bit, which is called dugout parties. That's like, like a commu- it's like a little community event when you need yeah, to add a, just yeah, renovations yeah. or a community event. Yeah, it was wow. great. I mean, it was, a, and I don't know how many bedrooms I put on, you know, like, but by the same token, I, I, I went to put the concrete floor down and my dugout, another section of my dugout, all these blokes turned up. That's very you know? cool. And then later on, the women turned up with all the meat and prepared and all the salads made and, you know, cracked coldy and, yeah, we've done the job. Thank you very much. And it was, a, you know, so it worked both ways. I, I don't think that happens today. Today is totally changed, you know. So. Yeah, I'm sure it would. How did your time in the opal mining game come to a, a, a close, I suppose? Like, was, well, was it that instability? Did it just kind of yeah. wear down after a while? Or? Yeah, no, well, it was, it's a long story, really. I mean, one of the other important things that happened in Cooperty was, uh, even in my existence, my, my, in my case, for instance, when we got married and Connie got pregnant, she said, well, that's it, I'm stopping work and I'm going to be a mum. I want to raise my children. She wants to be, she's an old fashioned girl. She wants to stay home, raise the children, because one day they're going to leave and I'll be on my own again, you know, but I'll have she and be there. So I want to spend my life raising my children, like be a house mum, you know, which is a great, great attribute, you know. And, um, and I hate it when people say, oh, I'm only a housewife. Oh, you're right, you know, like, I hate that, you know, because it's just, they're not, it's a massive job bringing up children, feeding the men and making sure the house is clean, you know, all that sort of thing. But anyway, um, uh, but when we were going open morning, every now and then go, go bad, and then I'd become a house dad. Because I'd go out open morning during the day, still haven't found open, we needed money to put food on the table, she'd go out and work night, and I'd stay home and look after the children. Wow. So a lot of the open miners survived because their women went out and went out, um, uh, went out putting food on the table. So when the open wasn't coming in, the women went out and get food on the table. And I can even remember one particular time where Connie mentioned, look, we're not doing too good at money. We're getting, you know, I'm off to go back and get another job. And, um, anyway, um, I said, okay, we'll have a talk about it tonight. But when I came home that night, I dug out enough money to buy two houses cash in Melbourne. Oh my goodness. It took me 20 minutes to dig it out. So now, that, that took me a minute. It was only $40,000, but in those days, you could buy a house for $20,000. That took me a minute to process what you just said. I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Like you've just gone from Connie needing to go back and get a job so I to came support home you? With $40,000. Now, it wasn't all mine. There were partners involved and yeah. you, and there was expenses to pay, but that's how much you can make money in in open mine. That's right, getting it. That's how you can find money. And I've heard people have gone, done and that, and dug out hundreds of thousands of dollars in a day. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, that was what happened. So that's what the album wanted to go. Anyway, get back to the other story. How it all finished was we got involved with this bloke from Pakistan, a lovely bloke, and couldn't have asked for a better partner. And uh, we might have kept him for a long time. Was doing very nicely. Thank you very much. Um, and he went over to Whitecliffs and with another team. He financed a couple of teams of people, and they put a hole down in the middle of nowhere. And from memory, you land on something like $150,000. This is in 1980, uh, 1979. So he said, come and have a look. So we went over and have a look. Because in those days, there was no big machinery in Wycliffe. All the big machinery were here. So we went over to uh, Wycliffe to have a look. And I took one look at what he'd done. I said, oh, luck, mate. Yeah, sheer luck. Yeah. What happened? He got the, built the drill bolt. Couldn't move it because it was bogged. So he drilled a hole and landed on 150000 So, you know. Anyway, I so said, we come back home and kept on morning here. And then they put another hole down and they landed on more open, which turned to be about $600,000. Oh. Um, and um, uh, so we thought, well, I still think it's luck, but maybe it's not. So we packed up and took all our gear over to Whitecliffs. The first year my family stayed here in Cooperty because they didn't want to pull the kids out of school. By now we've got two children. So then they come over the second year. And when they came over there, my partner's children and my children doubled the school population. <laughs> and that was only five kids. So it was an interesting time. But while we were there, Whitecliffe wasn't very kind to us at all. Um, everything we made previously was going down the gurgler. 
we got to the stage where we owed a lot of money. My partner wanted to pull out. And the hardest thing to find in open mining is an honest partner. I mean, Opal is easy compared to finding a partner. Um, one of the big downsides of open mining or finding a lot of money is that you'll get a group of people, a couple of people working together, and I've seen this numerous times. They work together for long periods. They share what they've got. They build their own homes together. They help each other out. Then they hit the big one, and then it hits the fan. And there's arguments and fights and what have you. So we always say... Or they steal. Oh, get that one. You remember, one stone could be worth a thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. Depends how good it is, you know. I've seen cut opal being sold for quarter million dollars. Like just one stone. Mm-hmm. Um, through the dealership, like dealers selling it, you know, through the dealers selling it through and that sort of stuff. So <laughs> the hardest part is getting an honest partner. And when you've got one, you hang on to one, you know, and you work, like you work together good. Anyway, I got the stage he wanted to pull out and we're going broke. And I was going to work um, longer and longer hours. The broker we got, the harder I worked. I had to find money. Otherwise, we're going to lose everything. I was going to work before the kids got out of bed. I was coming home after they'd gone to bed. And I'd come home absolutely dog-tired. I'd have enough sense to read him a little story. But they were already in their pyjamas in bed, that kind of stuff, you know. I'd go and read a little story, good night, darling, see you later, you know, the usual stuff. Um, yeah, and this was going on. And then one night, my wife and I were sitting up in bed, she said, I'm sick of this. She said, you're never here. She said, next weekend, you're going to take the weekend off, not go to work, you're going to spend it with me and the kids. And, of course, I said, no, I'm not, we're losing, I've got to find Opal, I've got to find Opal, you know. And she gave me that look that only women can give and says, you are taking the weekend off. <laughs> and I knew not to argue, of course. I'm not completely silly, you know. And I said, oh, that's nice, dear. Okay, mm, what are we going to do? And it just so happened she was a painter. She painted oil paintings. And she befriended a lady who was also an oil painter whose husband was a potter. And she said, we're going to go and see Eric undo his kiln. He's going to pull his kiln down. And I knew who Eric was, of course. And I said, you want me to go and see a potter? She said, yep. I said, don't be stupid. Yeah. A whooshy potter broke the place with mud. She said, yep. And guess what? You are going to turn up. You're going to have a great day and you're not going to embarrass me and the kids. <laughs> I knew from the way she was saying the only answer was yes, dear. Typical male response. You know, yes, dear. And we go and do it. And it turns out it was a great day and it changed my life because while I was there, he was pulling the, the, the kiln down, taking the pots out of the kiln, and being trained as a turn and fitter and tool maker, die maker, I was fascinated how he did it. Of course, you know, it was, I was in engineering, eh? but this is turning a piece of mud into a beautiful article. And I said, how do you do that? I'll come and I'll show you. Anyway, by the time the day had finished, I had a bit of a go on the potter's wheel. We come home that night. She said, you think you can make pottery? I said, yeah, of course I can make pottery. My brains are in my hands, not in my head, you know. I can do anything in my hands. She said, oh, okay. And that was it. I asked why. She said, oh, it doesn't matter. Left it at that. Anyway, a few, a few months later, we got to the stage we've got to sell. We've got to get out of debt. We, we owed a lot of money, and now we could pay our debts off. And partners leading, we'd sell all the equipment and pay our debts off. We could have gone bankrupt, but that would be unfair to the creditors. So we paid all the gear off, paid everybody back. Still had my dugout in Coopity, by the way. And we ended up, we saved... One motor, two motor cars. We had a car and a caravan, and a, and a, and a four-wheel drive, and the dugout and coop, and a thousand dollars left. So after all these years of work, that's what we had. So I said to Connie Wright, "Your turn now. What do you want to do?" And um, she said, "Well, and I thought she wanted to go back to Melbourne, live alongside her sisters. I'll get a job back at a factory, you know, and that sort of stuff." And she said, "Well, she said I don't want to leave Coop Petty." I said, oh. I said, I want to go back open mining. I've got to find some way of earning a living because the kids were getting close to secondary education, you know. And um, the days of taking gambles are over, you know. I had to you know, put some decent money in the bank to look after the kids and make sure the kids got a good start. Anyway, she said, well, the Bitumen Road's coming up the Kirk Petty. Might be long before tourism is going to boom. And at first I thought she wanted to open an opal shop. And I said, no, I'm not an opal shop. Sure, he goes, going to be walled. No, no, I want a craft shop. Always want a craft shop. I said, well, that's nice for you. What am I going to do? She said, we know you said you can make pottery. <laughs> so I become a potter. <laughs> and it totally changed my life. 
because all of a sudden I've gone from a bloke who blew mountains up and drilled holes down hundreds of feet or hundred feet and who who dug out tunnels underground, miles of tunnels underground, to sitting at a wheel playing with mud, making making, making beautiful articles. <laughs> so t- tell me more about what you mean when you say it changed your life. Well, I, I've, I went from cha- chasing millions of dollars to to enjoying life with my family. Um, basically what happened was when I started the pottery, my first instinct was to make Australian-made souvenir lines. So what I was going to do was make – I was going to use my trade. So I was going to make the coffee mugs or beer mug or ashtrays or whatever – and I was going to use my trade from the, the tool making, dye making and pattern making to make dyes that I could stick a, a clay badge on the, on the article. And I would make them up to get them back on my feet. I'd do it for Cooper Petey. And they would have a beautiful made high quality coffee mug with a badge on it that says Cooper Petey Oakfields and, and, and a picture on it. Um, then I thought, well, I could do that for Port Augusta. I could do it for Alice Briggs. I could do it for Ayers Rock. And I could make these churn these out by the millions. And sell them all over Australia, and I get rich. <laughs> <laughs> so still, kind of chasing millions, just not so quite the same millions. way. But as I got into it, the craft took over me. So I became more interested in the craft than making money. Now I still had to be sensible to make money, so I made a lot of functional pottery. I still made the souvenir lines, but only for Cooper Petty. Although I did do some stuff for Channel 10 TV station and I did some stuff for a couple other people that want a special badge on their thing, but not big articles. You know, I made them for the Netball Association, the Rifle Club, all that sort of stuff. But they were all sort of internal in my, you know, maybe they wanted 50. They didn't want thousands, they only wanted 50, you know. And um, But I got involved in the craft. So what I did was make functional pottery to make a living and put food on the table and expand and what you have to do in business. And then I started doing artwork for my own pleasure. But the artwork I didn't sell. And today I regret it. Not that I didn't sell it, but I didn't keep it. So a friend would come in, I'd have a vase a metre high that I'd carved and decorated and, you know, spent hours and hours working on and so I'd say, gee, I like that. I thought I could have that, you know. So I never saw my artwork. I, I gave it away. And now I go to people's places near these vases a metre high that I carved a deck or I think, oh, I wouldn't mind that back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you should be like, uh, I was actually just loaning that to you and I'd yeah. like it back now. It doesn't please. work that way. Yeah. <laughs> I have oh. tried that and I was told where to go. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> They're waiting for me to die. They're going to be worth a lot of money when I'm dead. <laughs> and how does it work, you know, being out here in Cuba Pedy, did you find there were enough tourists coming through and enough of a population here oh, to make a living from oh, your pottery? I couldn't handle it. Really? Yeah, no, I, I even brought up, you know, once again I'd be very careful because what I was doing, I was slipping back into the mass production. I was getting four buses a day. and Of tourists? Oh, come yeah, through. I, couldn't, wow. I couldn't cope. I mean, it was just, and I'd get other people coming up and help me and, and all of a sudden I started a real hang on. I mean, I'm getting back into the same strain. And, and I did let it take over for quite a while. I was open seven days a week. We're going back into that grind again. I thought, hang on, whoa, 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 you know, like. And then, yeah, so things started changing from there. And can you, is the pottery, I, I don't really know how it all works, but the, the stuff you use, I guess, to make the clay or the clay, does that come from Cooper Pedy no, or do you have no. to? There get is that clay around in? here, but, um, most of the stuff I made was functional. Um, so I needed to go in ovens and microwaves and dishwashers and the deep freeze and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, you had, had to be practical in some ways. Uh, and it was actually cheaper, even though clay is not cheap. It was cheaper to buy the clay already made by professional clay makers for that particular purpose, the suit your glazes, all that kind of thing, than it is to make your own clay. The, the purest, the purest, would say that's rubbish. You know, they, well, we make our own clay, we do whatever, you know. But that's, yeah, if you're going to make a living out of it, you can't do that. You've got to have a regular supply of clay and the right, the right concern. There are places where they can do that, but out here, no. There's no the clay's not good enough. They'll take, you'd have to add too much to it. And the quality of the, the article wouldn't be there for the customer. How did you go from working, I suppose, in the opal mining, you're, is quite salt, like, there's a lot of solitude, like, you're there blowing things up, working a machine, maybe a few people around you, and then next minute, you're doing this, and I suppose, while well, making your products, 
again, could be you could have some solitude in that. You're saying you're having four t- buses of tourists come through a day and all of a sudden you've got to be a real people person and talk to people. Did that come naturally to you or was it a bit weird after spending so much time on your own? Oh, no. I mean, um, most people on holidays, uh, you know, are there to enjoy themselves. Uh, they're curious, you know. Some people ask some pretty stupid questions, but the majority don't, you know. You can... Yeah, um, and, and we, we got we got a few dig bats for it. Um, I, had, I had a gold rule. Um, you know, we'd have you know maybe a hundred people through the shop in a day, and I'm only using that for a figure. You know, and and one person will give us a hard time with a dig bat, and they want to talk about the ding bat, and I say, hey, woo, when I talk about them, how about the ninety nine lovely people that came through? Yeah, let's talk about the hundred. Let's talk about the ninety nine lovely people. Who was about that person? You know, so they, they that was my that's my philosophy in on life today. Why talk about the person that's, you know, going to give you a hard time or, you know, is not particularly nice or ask you 101 stupid questions because they just want to, you know? Can I ask what some of the silly questions were? Oh, how often does a roof fall in? Yeah. Do you wear clothes in the summer? You know? (laughs) How can you live here? Why do you live here in this filthy place? Oh, that's a this bit... sort of stuff. Well, they get the short shove pretty quick. Yeah, know. I'll say. Well, those Excuse last ones me. are a little bit nasty. But and I... I've even had. I've even thought there were people going. I come down the house and they're going through the kitchen, look at the covers. See, oh, we want to see how you live. Oh, okay, yeah, that's that's pushing it a bit far. Yeah, yeah, but that yeah, first yeah. question: How often does your roof cave in? I did ask you when I came in here today. <laughs> I was no, like, you didn't ask me if the roof could cave yeah, in. Yeah, I said, how do you support it and make yeah, sure it that's, doesn't? That's, and that's, that's that's a normal question. That's understandable. But that's not how often the roof caves in. in yeah, yeah. A big yeah. difference between, well, how's the roof, how's the roof stay up than yeah. how often does it cave in? Yeah. And I have a typical answer for it. You know, like if we were there on a Wednesday and it was 12 o'clock, I said, oh, it normally comes in at about, oh, usually on a Wednesday, most days, most weeks. Uh, usually about five past twelve. You see, look at the watch. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is brilliant, Rowie. I wish mm. I could have seen people. Well, that um, is a, a kind of answer without so sort of silly question. When I mean, they ask how come the roof's up there, that's a that's a, a, a sensible standard question. You know, I mean, yeah. how's the roof up? Well, I don't know. It's there. You know, like, it's no, I do know. Just that. magic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It just is. It just yeah. floats. Mm. Um, so, how long did you end up doing pottery for? Probably. 20s, yeah. 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 And in that time, my son got involved and left and came back and left and come back. Um, so we were in partnership for a while and sometimes you work for wage, but for, for quite a while I was in partnership. Um, we started the, uh, we started a four-wheel drive tool business, uh, running tools at Lake Air in the Painted Desert. Um, and then the Marwan business came up and I bought that. So before we get into the Marwan, I just want to talk a little bit more about your time, I guess, the change from opal mining to pottery. Yeah. You said uh, it, there was a big, the biggest way it changed your life is that you you had time to be with oh, your family. Yeah, that yeah. so, talk to me a bit about that, about how life life changed and what it was like for you, kind of going at I guess a different pace of life. Yeah, well, the first thing that happened, of course, was that I wasn't going to work before the sun got up and coming home at dark. I'd get up in the morning. And go and get maybe light the kiln or get things ready and come back and have breakfast with the family when the kids were going to school. The kids never saw me going to school. The children being brought up when we be when I was open mining was uh, apart from weekends. And I'm only talking to Wycliffe's that was there, but in Coop life was a bit more relaxed because we were making money, uh, making a bit of money. So we had we had a lot of great times. It sounds like I was a I was never around the children, but in Wycliffe's, Butchie got that way towards the end. You know, when we're going broke and I was trying to find money. But up until then, we spent, you know, Saturdays and Sundays together or at least one day a week together with the kids, you know. So, and when I was in Coop Pudi, we spent more time together. We'd always home by four o'clock. Um, and the kids would, you know, well, all, our children were always picked up from school and, and, um, uh, there was always someone in the house when they came home. Uh, and if they walked home from school, they were still, there was never a, an adult not at home, you know. Um, and, uh, and when they came home, they'd, you know, they'd come down and give me a hand to get something fixed or they'd help us clean the opal or, or whatever, you know, we did things as a family all the time. But it was still opal mining. Uh, and I was still going to work early. Uh, and, and it was a little bit different. Whitecliffs, when I was talking about Whitecliffs, 
that was when we were going broke and we were going to work to try and find money to stop ourselves from going broke. So the rest of it wasn't like that all the time. But in saying that, when I started the pottery, the big difference was there, I wasn't going to work. I was going to another part of the house. And when the children go to, when I sit down and have breakfast with the, with the kids in the morning, uh, and then I go off to school. And when they came home, I was here. And so was Connie. So both of us were home. And Connie and I worked together. Um, and we could have lunch together. So all of a sudden I went out in the open field and, and I have to admit I missed it. I missed that, 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 that thing out in the opal fields, uh, going out there and the boys are there and taking a cut lunch in your thermos and a few of the miners getting together and sitting around, blokey thing, you know, having, having a cup of tea and a sandwich and talking about the chances of where we're going to drill next and where we're going to find it next. All that stuff still missed. So it was a whole jumble of things. But by the same token, where it changed my life was all of a sudden, um, I became more of a family man. And the other beautiful thing was that, that, if the weather was bad, the kids would come home with their, their friends and they'd all go down to pottery and get a lump of clay and make pots, you know. So um, it didn't go on all the time like that, but it did happen, you know. And then later on when um, uh, my son went out and worked on the cattle stations, I worked for Kidman's on Anna Creek and the Peak and those sort of places, um, those kids who were out there going to school there, out there, they'd come here every Christmas to to make their Christmas presents. So a lot of the kids that are out there, like uh, you met Haley Nunn, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. well, I've got pictures of her when she was a little tacker making mum and dad a Christmas present, you know. We'd have kids here all lined up. Derek used to take it for that. So after we finished on the cattle station, he'd come back in here and he would take all the kids and they'd all make Christmas presents for their parents. And he'd make them make good things too. He'd set it up so they could make something simple. They could just a pot, and they make help. He'd make help them all make the basic pot. Then they could decorate it the way they like. Then we'd fire them and and deliver all the pots around to the, all the kids from school. Yeah, it was great. I mean, all this sort of stuff just changed. Where all of a sudden, making money was important, but it wasn't the most important thing. Life became real. Life became put in perspective. The old saying, we all heard it, you're here for a short time, not a long time, you know. Um, every time you wake up, you say, what a beautiful day. Even if it's blowing a gale, pouring down with rain, it's freezing cold, or it's 45 degrees or 80, 48 degrees outside, you're awake, it's a beautiful day. And appreciate that you're awake. So that sort of thing started stepping in my life. Back when I was mining, was, I'm never going to die, I'm invincible. And I'm going to make a million dollars, so I can go and do What? Hmm. You know what I mean? What am I going to do with a million dollars? Aren't I better off having a million close friends? So wise, Rowie. I'm go- um, I've got the goosebumps right now. It's just I don't know. I really don't know, oh. um, Steph. You know, I mean, and that's just the way I feel. So what? What? How it changed me? It changed me from a bloke who was running around like a like a blue ass trying to trying to make a million dollars, but for what? What am I going to do with it? Sit back and get fat and drink champagne, you know. Why don't I spend my time developing friendships? I just, you know? I, you still I, gotta make money. You still gotta make money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we still need to survive, but yeah. it's just you have just articulated so much wisdom in just a few minutes of talking, and you've done it so beautifully, Rowie. Like, Thank you. well, that's what I, that's what I believe. See, so you know. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. 
you can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations. And we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au. And we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.